Hi everyone, I'm Karen Karitzer, CEO of the ARC and Ida Lewis, and together with Heather Evans, our Vice President of Development, we host the ARC Waves podcast. ARC Waves shares best practices and habits of diverse performers and leaders. These inspiring leaders are from all stages of the leadership wheel, from seasoned CEOs to emerging leaders, risk takers and innovators, for-profit and not-for-profit. Our guests are trailblazers, serving as beacons for those striving to be outstanding leaders in the disabilities field and beyond. A comprehensive clinical evaluation is an important first step to helping a child with a developmental disability get the services and supports they need. But where do you start to find someone to perform this evaluation? And how do you know they have the expertise that is needed? In this episode of Arc Waves, we speak with Dr. Danielle Bronk, a pediatric neuropsychologist with an extensive background in performing evaluations for people with developmental disabilities. She has a private practice, Neurodevelopmental Health Services, where she provides independent evaluations, transition planning, and diagnosis support. Hello and welcome, Dr. Bronk. Hi, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure really to have you here with us today. Um, So I thought we would start with um, you telling our listeners about your education and your practice at Neurodevelopmental Health Services. Sure, happy to. So uh, after college, I decided to pursue a master's in school psychology. And I greatly enjoyed that. And I happened to work with a school psychologist who also had her PhD and she specialized in neuropsychology, which is the study of uh, the relationship between um, brain and behavior. And I learned a tremendous amount from her and I really decided I needed to go beyond just a master's. And so I pursued my doctorate in counseling psychology with a specialization in neuropsychology. And uh, ultimately, after I got licensed, I then went for a board certification in pediatric neuropsychology. So really looking at the relationship between brain and behavior in children, young adults, uh, looking at um, development in children and how to enhance their development and also help those with a developmental disability. I think the neuro piece is so critical and, um, and it's, I think, having somebody um, with that specialty provides a much more comprehensive um, look at, at, a, at a child. Would you say that's would, accurate? I, I definitely do. Maybe I'm a little bit biased, but <laughs> I feel for me, even, you know, having that master's in school psychology, I felt limited in mm-hmm. terms of how much I really wanted to dig deeper for children and really understand what are their profile of strengths as well as their weaknesses. And neuropsychology, for me, really answers that question because you're looking at an individual's profile across cognitive domains. So not just doing like a basic IQ, uh, intellectual assessment and academics, but looking at their language abilities, looking at their visual spatial skills, their memory, their attention, executive functions, and their social emotional um, functioning to really get a complete picture I think sometimes too, and I'm, I can see already I'm going off the script of my questions, Heather, <laughs> but I, I do think that um, there are areas that, that we're not as familiar with as um, even a community in the developmental disabilities field 
about the neuropsychology. I'm thinking a lot about lately language disorder mm-hmm. and mm-hmm, how, sure. you know, you look at um, the language issues, um, whether it's receptive um, or not, or is, um, you know, people ex- being able to express themselves as well as, you know, attention issues and how you, you have to sort out, you know, which is one or the other. I mean, I think that's another reason why going to somebody with your background and your education, it helps that. It helps us to say, you know, you can rule out maybe ADHD, but geez, you know, um, this is a child who has has perhaps language disorder. Right. And, you know, it's to that point, Karen and Dr. Bronk, when you talk about like the school psychologist and the the limitations, it is a is a great starting off point to then dig deeper with someone like yourself. Like maybe the uh, challenge is first noted in school, um, but then mm-hmm. to be able to have that evalu- evaluation with you and really mm-hmm. understand the differentials because it is easy to just pigeonhole someone as oh this is ADHD or this sure. is you know uh, something else. But to really understand like you said that brain. Um, combination with behavior can help parents also, I think, feel empowered as to where they can go next. Agree. You know, parents know their child better than anyone else. They're the expert, really. And so they often come to me and they have a sneaking suspicion that, you know, these are the areas that my child may struggle with. And so what I have to do is tease that apart and, and really pinpoint cognitively what's going on here because there's quite a few um what we call like superficial similarities um between you know areas of cognition where it could it be an attention issue Mm. could it be a language issue could it be both and so that's where we have to tease that apart and that's where i feel the neuropsychological eval is so helpful in doing so um sure there are speech and language pathologists that do wonderful job of of assessing language and it it, what happens though sometimes is maybe the child isn't really red flagged for that or or we're not quite sure so they may miss seeing that professional right so then if they come to me i i look at it all really um so so what are i know you talked a, a little bit about this but what might be some reasons why a person is referred to you for an evaluation and and are there indicators that may tell a parent when it could be time to speak with you about receiving an evaluation? Sure, good question. So really it could be a, a variety of different reasons, but many times it's because the child is having some academic or learning-based struggles. So whether that's uh, issues related to reading, mm-hmm. issues related to mathematics, to writing, um, to uh, you know test preparation and, and um, you know studying and preparing for tests, Uh, It could be my child is highly disorganized and more so than other children and and I don't know how to help. Uh, It could be a social emotional concern. So the child may struggle to uh, make friends and and to keep relationships going or they may be anxious or depressed and parents are very concerned about you know how can i best help my child if they are struggling with mood mm-hmm. so it really can be a, a any one of those um concern areas do you find that um parents are maybe reticent about coming to you they know they have a sneaking suspicion uh as you said that there might be something going on with their child but do you how do you overcome that that sensation as a parent of um 
unwillingness or inability or desire not to admit that there maybe is a problem. Mm-hmm. And and that does happen. And 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 what I see sometimes is maybe one parent, uh, mom or dad, is ready to you know find out and acknowledge and really learn about their child's strengths and weaknesses. The other parent may not or mm-hmm. may not be as ready. And so kind of having to meet them both at their different, um, you know, viewpoints and really kind of walking them through the process of the eval, you know, where could this be helpful? How could this be helpful to you, you know, in the community and connecting you to different resources? Uh, and also that, you know, sometimes there are fears for some that, oh, this may, you know, label my child sure. and then this label is going to, you know, stay with my child indefinitely. And we talk about uh, the fluidity of of labels, why, you know, if there is a diagnosis, why that may be helpful, uh, but that I'm a particularly cautious practitioner and we don't want to mislabel or over over label children either. So trying to put them at ease in that regard. I think that's great. And yeah, I, I, I think parents, that. particularly if they're, you know, new, if this is their first child and they're, you know, unsure about, you know, what is what is happening, I think sometimes it's always just great to give a call to a, and, you know, somebody uh, with your background to just say, is, is it time for me to come in for an evaluation or to bring my child in? One of the things I think is interesting too is sometimes parents um, don't, always recognize um, the need to have their child evaluated. And it could be maybe the child's now a teenager, um, Mm. you know, or maybe they were evaluated perhaps in early intervention um, and received some services, but perhaps there were some things that were overlooked, um, Mm -hmm. you know, later on. So, um, you know, one of the things we have here at the Arcanida Lewis is an early intervention program. We're also in every school district in, in Oneida County um, providing supports and services. Um, and I know we have sometimes made referrals, you know, to uh, for evaluation as well. Um, can you talk about what age a person um, can come in and receive an evaluation from you? And do they need sure. a referral from a physician or can someone self-refer? So someone can self-refer. I often like to receive information from a pediatrician or an early intervention provider if the child's already connected through early intervention. So the more the more background information I have on the child is always best. Um, and I see children as young as two years of age through, uh, I actually work with adults too, so I'll, oh, wow. I'll see adults as well. Uh, but it's really important to uh, have, you know, as much information as I can. So if there are other providers or therapists involved, that's always helpful for me too. But I don't necessarily, it doesn't need to start the referral process. A parent can contact me directly uh, and, and we can get the ball rolling. How long does an evaluation typically um, take? Okay, so that's a good question. And there are different types of evaluations that are out there that I offer. Uh, So it depends on, um, you know, if we're talking about a developmental eval for a very young child and there's a specific concern around potentially, say, autism spectrum, uh, where we're looking more at these social, emotional, and behavioral pieces. Um, If we're doing a psychological evaluation, then we're getting into some standardized testing of the child's intellect, of their um, academics if they're school age, 
Uh, and then, as I've, we've already kind of highlighted a bit, the neuropsychological is looking at really those various cognitive domains, so language, visual, spatial, memory, et cetera. So, uh, you know, the developmental can be a, a briefer like half day type visit working directly with the child and the parent. The psychological typically is, you know, multiple hours and then the neuropsychological is quite lengthy. So that would probably entail, you know, several visits. Mm -hmm. The um, parent who calls you and knows that there's something awry with the way their child is behaving or functioning, that first phone call I can imagine is probably a pretty scary one to make. Um, What's the conversation like with that parent when they're saying, you know, something's just off and I don't know what it is? Uh, How do you start? (laughs) Yeah, that's such a common um, experience that when, you know, parents call me, they're not really quite sure, like, is this, some are particularly sure they've been referred for an evaluation, they know this is what they need. Others may not really be 100% certain. And so we will talk on the phone and have a, a brief conversation to hear what are the concerns. And, and if if I feel that, you know, this child really needs to get involved in uh, early intervention first. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is is paramount. Um, you know, I'll make the referral and and talk about early intervention and the importance of that. Uh, and then we can see about simultaneously doing an eval or waiting until they get going with early intervention. Or if, say, therapy is really needed, so like a talk therapy or play therapy, um, I will connect people with resources they need immediately if if that seems to be what is, you know, needed. So I don't want people, I want to really try to be as helpful as I can in terms of of having the child, you know, get going. Because what we know about children, especially with developmental disabilities, that more, you know, the more in, the intensive intervention at the earliest possible age mm-hmm. is, is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to wait. Um, so making sure they, they are connected with you know, the resources they need right at that moment. You you also, I, I think, um, from my understanding, is that at the end of an evaluation and then you provide sort of the review with the parent, um, also provide resources, like, right? I mean, do you, uh, articles Correct. and things like that or books that they could read or even maybe perhaps locations um, in the community that might offer supports and services um, that for that particular um, concern, uh, that might need more attention. Um, I think that's an, a really, really important piece for parents to know that that, that is part mm-hmm. of yeah, what you do. Yeah, and that's, that's really the, the end goal is to, you know, really understand their child and, and, you know, the different facets of their learning, of their emotional functioning. Um, but then the, the next, I mean, really most important thing is, okay, now that we've identified cognitively where the child is, emotionally, socially, how can we help them? And so really it's it's key to connect the family with resources in the area. And because I've um, been practicing and living here for quite some time now, you know, knowing what those resources are. Sure. Um, you know, different agencies, different professionals, depending on the child's needs that I feel that would be best suited. Um, so, and also giving the parent resources and, you know, it's a learning process for parents too. So really understanding what is that pro, what are the implications of that profile? So what can I think about at home? You know, how can I communicate with my child 
the best way possible and knowing that, okay, now I know I have this frame, framework for seeing my child and knowing that, oh, it's not the child because sometimes I'll hear maybe, oh, my child's been, you know, uh, labeled lazy. Right. And, you know, no, it's, it's actually not, it, there's a cognitive basis to what's happening for this child. And, and so seeing it through a new lens and then how to communicate and work with your child in the best way possible. Dr. Bronk, that's so wonderful that you consider the parents as part of this equation as well, because they, to your point, they're the ones that are at home with the child. They need to understand that framework within which they can view the children and also what their resources are. Because, again, as a parent, you often have to be the one that's standing up and being strong and saying this is all going to be okay. But Mm -hmm. they need support, too. So Absolutely. (laughs) I think that's – I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, the parent is is an integral process to that. And, and, you know, especially many times there are children that I'm seeing that have some behavioral challenges Mm -hmm. and, you know, and the stress levels for parents and, and, you know, and I, I think many times I've heard that just understanding their child and realizing, okay, this is what's going on. Right. Um, that provides a level of, of comfort, relief, uh, understanding it, and, and then, you know, kind of then taking it from there to know, okay, this is what we can do about it. How empowering. And I love that, yes. you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, you get to know your child much more. Um, sure. because of the evaluation and the process. And um, I, I think that's so important for parents to be able to have that opportunity to, to get to know their child in ways that maybe, you know, they weren't able to do or, you know, the fact that we're going, you went through the process and the lengthy evaluation and the thorough evaluation that you do, they get to see the strengths, um, you know, the ch- child's capabilities and, you know, areas that they could really um, that could really help them, mm-hmm. as well as you know the areas that they might need to work on, and and then how c- the parent might be able to to do things differently so that they can draw mm-hmm. out the the more positives and and help them with you know whether it's organizational or skills or you know helping them to express themselves in different ways, um, you know through different mediums. You know I think there's such a a wonderful outcome at the end. Um, that even though the evaluation can take a long time, it's well, well worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's my hope. That's my goal. <laughs> you know, the you talked a little bit about how important it is to um, get a jump on things. The moment you kind of realize there might be something awry, the earlier uh, that you get these evaluations and understand what the resources are. But um, school-age children, sometimes that's when those issues are first noticed, particularly if it's a parent of a, their first child. Maybe they you know, don't have comparators. Um, sure. And when you have a, a professional, a teacher, or guidance counselors, or school psychologists on staff, they may notice things that, that a parent wouldn't notice. So mm-hmm. where does an evaluation for a school-age child fit in, um, and what is that process like, and mm-hmm. you know, how does that factor into their success at school? Sure. So many times parents of school-age children are calling me and, and seeking out an eval service for a variety of reasons. So it might be that um, the child is having some learning challenges and they don't have a plan, you know, that, you know, school maybe has not, um, you know, 
identified it yet um, mm-hmm. for at no fault to them, but just that it, it's maybe very subtle or it's just kind of newly emerging. Um, so we want to kind of see what's going on and, and if there is a plan that's needed, what would that look like? And um, other times parents are calling because maybe they have had an evaluation by another practitioner or um you know, someone within the school, and maybe they, are there still unanswered questions? Are there, uh, they suspect there's a diagnosis, but it couldn't be made because it was um, made by a master's level provider and they and they are unable to make a diagnosis. Um, or maybe the child is, has a plan. So maybe they receive some special education support or therapies at school, but they're not progressing uh, the way that they should, that, that, you know, they're just, parent is not seeing the gains or, um, you know, that that learning process is not going in the right uh, direction. So those are some of the reasons that school-age parents are contacting me. Uh, I do a lot of transition planning too. So many times it's maybe a, a child that's going from preschool to elementary school, um, and, and preparing for that transition, or middle to, uh, you know, an elementary who's going into middle, or a middle going into high school, um, and preparing for that transition. Um, because as, as children age, and they're, you know, going through middle school, high school, those executive functions, and what those are, it's just really a fancy term for goal-directed behaviors that help us achieve and, and accomplish tasks. So like organization, planning, uh, initiation, problem solving, you know, those those cognitive skills become really tapped in middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some reasons as well as even doing transition planning for college mm-hmm. and beyond even graduate school or medical school or law school. And, and if, if had testing accommodations, in uh, in high school and then wanting to carry and continue those through their college experience. So it is really important to have your evaluation or, you know, that comprehensive evaluation um, uh, done before you might want to go perhaps to ask for a um, special education meeting. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I, you know, I think so. I think that if, if parents, um, you know, they can take two routes, they can, they can go um, you know, through the process, through the school district and seek out, you know, district-based evaluations and see how that, um, you know, does that answer their questions? Does it develop an, a, a plan that they feel comfortable with and, you know, appropriate plan um, and and see how that process goes? And then if they need me, if they if there's still unanswered questions or they, they're not feeling that the plan is just where they need it to be or, or sufficient. Um, or some parents say, you know, I'd like an outsider's perspective. Sure. So someone that's not connected maybe with, with uh, you know, any particular um, school or program and to see, okay, and, and especially if they're looking for that neuropsychological evaluation, that is a specialty evaluation. So that has to be, you know, performed by someone who has the background and training um, to do so. And so that's where, you know, you look to a uh, community-based provider who has that expertise. Dr. Bronk, the, you know, the desire to maybe stick with a school evaluation to start with, again, maybe early on, and they're just saying, let's see what the school has to say. And a parent may feel comfortable with that plan, but then may find themselves in a position where they're not seeing results. Mm-hmm. Um, how quickly should, or, and maybe this is a, dip, 
and a difficult thing to enumerate, uh, should there be some sort of impact once the plan is put in place? Well, so say if special education services are are awarded to that particular student, so they're receiving, they have what's called an IEP or an individualized education program. Uh, they're going to be progress monitoring. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be goals that are established as part of that plan. Uh, and then your, you know, the parent is going to be getting quarterly updates. Uh, and so, you know, that's when you can see is, it, you know, are they making the progress that they should be? Right. Um, is the intervention well suited for that, for the particular child's issue? Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if you're getting, you know, if the parent's getting quarterly reports that, well, the progress has been inconsistent or it's been limited mm-hmm. um, or there's a regression when there's school breaks, um, you know, those are the kind of maybe red flags that should come up for parents to say, OK, maybe we need more information. Right. Maybe maybe we need, um, you know, uh, some more further information for uh, on their child and then an, another perspective on what interventions might be more appropriate. So, so oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and it's going to, we're taking sort of a, a right angle here, um, but you had mentioned autism spectrum disorder earlier sure. in the conversation. That's something that people have heard quite a bit about over the years. Um, according to the CDC, the prevalence of autism spectrum disorder in- increased from 1 in 150 in 2000 to 1 in 54 in 2020. Um, mm-hmm. Can you speak to what autism spectrum, spectrum disorder is? Um, I think there's, there's quite a bit of um, confusion sometimes about what that is, and I was wondering if we, you could speak to that. Oh, I'd be happy to. So actually, last, just last week, um, some new data came out. Um, the CDC actually posted that um, some data that they recently looked at, one in 44. One in 44. Oh my yes. goodness. So just last week that came out. Okay. Uh, and really, autism spectrum disorder is a neurodevelopmental disorder. So that means it originates in childhood. Um, and what happens is it's characterized by challenges in social skills, um, repetitive behaviors, speech, and nonverbal communication. So there's really a constellation of symptoms. Uh, so, you know, there are many children that may have some subtle social, you know, um, struggles or at periods of time in their life, they may have some social challenges. But for the child on the autism spectrum, there are what I would say are pretty significant impairments in um, socialization. Mm -hmm. So it's difficulty establishing and maintaining friendships. Uh, It can be difficulty with social communication. So being able to have a back and forth reciprocal conversation with others, Um, maybe picking up on on social cues. So reading other people's facial expressions, that kind of thing. Uh, And it's a spectrum disorder. So that means the symptom profile can vary from individual to individual. So you may see individuals that are on the autism spectrum that have pretty significant communication challenges. They may be nonverbal. They may have uh, intellectual limitations. And then you may see another individual who also has an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, but who is well above average intelligence, really bright, but has those socialization challenges and may have issues with 
um, you know, maintaining and establishing relationships, but are able to hold a job or are college um, bound. And so it really can vary. I appreciate you giving such a, a broad viewpoint of what autism spectrum disorder is, because I think oftentimes we just abbreviate and say autism. And it's important to have that word spectrum in there because it is not a one size fits all diagnosis. There are a lot Absolutely. of different manifestations. And uh, I think including that word spectrum offers a chance for more acceptance and more appreciation of the skill sets that are uh, available to each person. And if I could add, I think too, Dr. Bronk, it's so important for us, um, particularly those who, you know, like us that work on the, uh, in the field, um, that we point out that there are wonderful strengths. And I think looking at yes. strengths-based instead of it, you know, always as a disorder or maladaptive, and, you know, I think it's so important to see that there are wonderful wonderful strengths. Um, oh, I, I, there's so many examples of individuals I've worked with, even at the adult level. So individuals who had that diagnosis um, during childhood and now living with autism spectrum as an adult who have these, I mean, amazing careers because some of the cognitive strengths that they have, that attention to detail and and being able to analyze visual data. I've, I've worked with professionals that have really had you know, a, a, amazing success in a given occupation because they were able to use those cognitive strengths that they have to have a really fulfilling career. So it's, it is, it's, it's, it's amazing to see. Um, and it's, it's just a matter of kind of identifying that and being able to find that path that really, you know, works for them. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure to have this discussion with you and, um, we're going to move into the lightning round questions and, and that's, that's Heather's baby to, to, to do, <laughs> it's but my purview. Oh, <laughs> Be okay. before we end the major questions, I just want to say, we're going to put uh, the link to your practice in our uh, show notes and contact information for you, um, to make sure that people have that. And, um, so I'm going to turn it over to Heather now. All right, here we go. Are you Thank ready, you. Dr. Bronk? <laughs> okay. I'm ready. I think I'm ready. All right. What area of neuropsychology interests you the most? I would have to say uh, autism spectrum has been my one of my areas of interest for such a long time. And um, especially females on the spectrum has been a, an interesting interest in, in particular of mine uh, because there are some um, unique uh, aspects and and challenges or um, it composes as kind of an interesting area for um, evaluation for some females on the autism spectrum. So I, I would say that's a particular interest of mine, uh, as well as dyslexia has been another area of focus that um, over the years that has been, a, you know, something that I really have taken, you know, done a deep dive and, and see many people um, with you know, learning challenges in my practice. That could be a whole other podcast probably yeah. because I, uh, the dyslexia um, frame of mind in terms of how they teach children to read and how they overcome that has, has gone through so many metamorphoses over the past couple mm -hmm. of decades. It truly has. Yes, absolutely. The, uh, the second one would be, what is your favorite book or movie? Oh, okay. Uh, so... Well, if I think back to childhood, Little Women was absolutely my Yay, <laughs> favorite book. I loved it. And and they actually came out with a movie maybe within the last couple of years, um, 
the movie Little Women. And my daughter and I watched it not too long ago, and we just loved it. I have to say it was one that really mirrored the book so closely and was so enjoyable. So I'd probably say for book and movie Little Women was really great. Oh, that's wonderful. How about your uh, favorite dog breed? Oh, okay. (laughs) So I have three dogs, and two of which are Jack Russell Terriers. And they're just really, they are energetic and they're very bright. <laughs> Not for everyone. <laughs> they tend to be very barky. Um, but I just love their intellect and love and they're very loyal. So I, they're my most favorite breed for sure. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so very much for taking the time to talk with us this morning. Well, I am sure there'll be a lot of people who have uh, interest in following up. Yeah, and we'll... Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. We'd love to keep you in mind to have you on again sometime. I mean, there's so many, just in the questions that we asked, you could do a deep dive in all of them. And Absolutely. it would be wonderful to, to, to keep you on our, our list if that's okay for you. That's absolutely okay. I'd love to come back and talk again. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Disclaimer, the views, ideas, and opinions expressed in this podcast are only those of the individuals involved and do not reflect the official policy or position of the ARCO Nida Lewis chapter, the ARC New York, or any other agency, organization, employer, or company.